Welcome to the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses and the Making of Appetite for Destruction mid-season recap. My name's Mina McNair and I'm your host today. I'm joined by Jason and Mark. Thank you both for being here. Hey, Lamina. Thanks. Glad to be here. Jason, do you want to explain why we're doing this recap and also give fans a look behind the curtain as to what we've been up to for the last month? Sure, of course. We've been building a new website, working on syndicating the show to Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. We've been designing merchandise and and we're about to launch some really great pieces from Mark's archive and some original stuff for the first 50 gigs. Today, as a creator, it's not just about creating the content. We wish it was because we'd love to put all of our energy into creating this great content and making it as good as we can. Right. Yes. It's very multifaceted rather than just sitting down and recording an episode. <laughs> there are we, 10 other we layers. We wish it were that easy. Yeah. <laughs> we wish it were, yes. But there are about 10 other layers at least to get through. It's it's no different than, than bands. You know, you used to be able to go into the studio and lay down your tracks and and then you're done. And the studio would basically take care of the rest. That's not the case anymore. Musicians have to know all of the the pro tools, they have to do their own marketing. They've got to have their social media game on. So it's no different than that. That's a really great comparison. Well, what can fans expect to see moving forward? We left off on our last episode with Steve Darrow talking to us about the new Hollywood Rose. Yeah, this is a great point to take a break and and talk about what we've heard from this narrative so far, because once Hollywood Rose breaks up, then a whole new series of events and sliding doors and revolving doors of bands and musicians kind of kind of takes us to a whole new level. So we're going to hear from Rod Gardner talk about the formation of LA Guns with Tracy Guns, how Axel became a part of LA Guns at that time, was recruited in. We're going to talk about how Guns N' Roses was started, the actual origin of that band. And then we're going to talk about Duff coming into the fold. We're going to talk about um, the fact that he planned this this Northwest tour that became Hell Tour. We're going to talk about some last minute switching that happened that led to the Appetite lineup. So that revolving door spins for the final time. And then we're going to come back and talk about what happened on Hell Tour and why that was such a significant turning point in the story of this band. And we're going to talk about that iconic shot at Cantor's of them sitting in the booth having come back from Hell Tour. You know, they left as five guys and they came back as a band. They came back as a gang. And then, you know, we're going to recap the whole season. We're going to preview season two. I will say we're, we're now beginning to release full galleries of Mark's cutting room stuff. So this is stuff that's never been seen before. And now we're able to publish those, you know, this, this great archive and really open up Mark's vault um, more than we even anticipated. So anybody who's a patron is going to be seeing those gallery drops. Okay, perfect. So to all the Spotify fans, move over to Patreon to get the exclusive content. So we keep mentioning, and we've driven the point home many times, that we've been following five individuals, but we're coming up on the moment of them becoming a single unit, and the story is going to become clearer and more linear. How insane was that to keep the chronology straight? Yeah, I mean, Mark wasn't in five places at the same time. He was only in one place. Yet we're trying to tell a story in a visual way of how all the guys came together to form the Appetite lineup of Guns N' Roses. And I think we've done a pretty good job um, interviewing people who were in a variety of these different bands 
with the individual members of the Appetite lineup before they were together. But there's gaps. I mean, part of this midseason recap is to fill those gaps as best we can. Everybody remembers the story a little bit differently, um, whether that's intentional or whether they just can't remember people. And it, well, to be honest, there was there was a lot of movement. So it's understandable that people couldn't keep it straight. So it's really up to us as the storytellers to, and the editors here to kind of filter all the different voices we've heard. Slash's biography, Duff's biography, Stephen Adler's biography, contributions from fans around timeline. I think there's something called uh, A4D that really did a great job of also trying to bring together all these different articles and, and things. And they even quoted, you know, a lot of stuff from Reckless Road. So yeah, it's our job to really filter all that and, and try to present the most truthful interpretation of how this all came together. I do want to move more towards talking about the actual episodes. We started out this season really focusing on Slash's early years, his friendship with Mark, his garage bands, and other than Mark, our first guest was Adam Greenberg from Titus Sloan and Road Crew. But Slash and Adam weren't the only guys at Fairfax High School who had bands, right? Yeah, Fairfax High School is pretty unique. You know, Mark, I, I think you can speak to this since you were there. You know, Tracy Guns had Pyrus, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, all the band members came out of there. There was just a lot going on at Fairfax. But Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about um, some of that and maybe the rivalry. We also had Anthem, which was a band with Alan Johannes, who's still around now, and members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers were in his band too. So there was a really a good handful of, of, of really great musicians that came out of Fairfax High School between 1980-1983. It was like happening whether you were involved with it or you just watched it, it, it was there. Yeah, so that's where we are in time. Just just so everybody knows, you know, the Adam Greenberg episode, is it's really 1982-1983. And it was also during this time that while Adam and Slash were doing Titus Sloan and Road Crew, Izzy and Axel were reuniting in L.A. from Indiana and they were experimenting with their own bands, Rapid Fire, Shire, and Duff was up in Seattle in his own bands as well. So everyone was doing music, but not together quite yet. Yeah, I mean, this is a great example of, you know, covering this early part of Slash's career with his garage bands, but not being able to really cover Izzy, Axel, and Duff. You know, even Steven comes into Slash's story at the end of Adam Greenberg's episode. So I believe Izzy came out first in 1981, Axel followed. You know, Duff doesn't come out until later, right? He's at this time in 1983, um, he is in Seattle and and he cycles in and out of a variety of bands as well. Mark, is there anything that you wanted to contribute about, you know, uh, the story you might know from either Izzy or Axel about them coming out even before they met Slash? Not really. Uh, I, I didn't really pay too much attention to that. And uh, so it's maybe I've heard bits and pieces of it, but Actually, in your research, you probably know more than I do. Although there is a story from Slash from 1982 that didn't get told yet in these episodes. We kind of sort of missed it. And it's his small edition for Kiss. And I think since we're in 82, now would be a good time to probably shoot it out. It's a quick little story. Uh, Slash was working at uh, Hollywood Music Store, which is now Genghis Cohn, right off of Fairfax and Melrose which is actually about 50 feet north of Centerfold Newsstand, which is a place that Slash used to work at in 1985. 
and was fired for doing bad business on company time. But it, it all kinds of brings us back to the Fairfax district because he went to school at Fairfax High School, which is right across the street from that. He worked at Canada for a little bit, which is two blocks south from that. But anyways, uh, so in between customers and nothing going on, Slash would plug a guitar into an amp and doodle around. And the owner of that store was a Japanese guy. His name was Hiro. And he could clearly see that Slash knew what was going on with the guitar. And since he was in the industry, he got word that Kiss was looking for a new guitar player. The, the public didn't know it yet, but Ace was out. And so he recommended Slash for the job. And so there was a phone call set up between Slash and Paul Stanley. And uh, the phone call came in the afternoon. I was actually there with Slash. I couldn't hear Paul Stanley, but I could hear Slash's answers. After they hung up the phone, it was like, I said, what did you say? Okay, so he asked if I'd be able to tour. Yeah, I could do that. Uh, how about record? Yeah, I could pull that off. Um, are your parents cool with it? Yeah, they're cool with it. The only problem is Slash was 17 years old. And I think that was a big concern for Paul Stanley to take on that kind of liability you know, with a young guitar player, uh, someone underage a little bit. The audition never made it to you know a studio or, or some a rehearsal. It was just basically a, an interview on the phone. But had Paul Stanley would have actually taken a closer look at Slash and the way Slash moved around and the way he dressed and the way certainly the way he played, I you know learned three songs, come jam them. I'm pretty sure that Paul Stanley would have found a way to make that happen. There is child you know there's child rock and roll stars that do it all the time. So probably a way around it. He just probably thought it was more convenient to find someone over 18. Had that happened, Kiss would have been a really better band and Guns N' Roses might have not actually happened. So it, it's kind of an important thing. Uh, the joke of it is Paul Stanley then came around in 1986 when Guns N' Roses got signed and wanted to produce them. But nobody actually told Paul Stanley that he had a chance of actually getting slashed in 1982. He, Paul Stanley to this day does not know that he passed up on Slash. Slash himself has very little memory of it. I told that story once with an interview I did together with me and Slash, and he looked at me like he was a little confused. <laughs> he actually kind of just didn't even remember it. So no, 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 it happened. <laughs> it was brief. <laughs> it was an almost moment. But it, it happened. I mean, sure, if you went to an actual audition, you would have remembered it a lot clearer. But it was a phone interview, and it was Paul Stanley. As, as we learned from the bonus episode about his audition with Poison, he wasn't really down with, with kind of dressing up as much as they were and, and so much of the kind of the hair metal act. You know, they almost kind of pushed it to a clown act, and, and Slash really wasn't down for that. I can't imagine that he would be down for all the makeup and, and the, the kind of um, theatrics that, that Kiss had. Yeah, but you know what? Okay, that's true. But Kiss, Poison is one thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a Troubadour band that might sell out the Troubadour. Maybe they had a record contract. Who knows? They're not certainly weren't on the radio at that time. Kiss was the biggest, one of the biggest bands in the world as far as 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 how they marketed themselves and all the toys and you know they they were cool. And so you know, if nothing else, it's a stepping stone. It's like Steve Yvonne being in David Bowie's band for five minutes. It got him noted, noticed, and he went out on his own after that. So if nothing else, uh, uh, Kiss was more of a, a, of a blues rock band than Poison. You know, Poison was more kind of like bubblegum rock, you want to call it, I guess. I'm not sure how you really call that. But Kiss was, even though it wasn't exactly what Slash had in mind, 
it would have certainly he would have turned it, it would down. have been a better stone it a would better have, stepping yeah, it stone would have been for a, him. a really big stepping stone you're in kiss hello it doesn't, right. you know, <laughs> it doesn't get any bigger than that <laughs> no you're in kiss that's all it's it just you're, you're not going to pass that down during this period of you know, him getting these auditions, he was really developing his sound and style and starting to find a groove with other musicians, but he didn't always play with a Les Paul. I think the equipment that he used, the guitars he cycled through was certainly part of him finding his iconic sound and style. Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about all the guitars he used? Well, okay, that you're making a good point. Although it really is the fingers and it's the person more so than it is the guitar. The Les Paul certainly was the cherry on the top of that cake, but the cake was already there. But he was playing a BC Rich Mockingbird, and he had a very, very thick sound coming out of that. It was, it didn't sound like a Les Paul, but it was certainly thick and rich, and and it had quality to it. The Les Paul was more of an image it actually gave it actually changed his image a little bit you know jimmy page was known for the les paul joe perry did a lot of les paul jeff beck was on the les paul so it's in it's in the line of look that we know the les paul looks cool we know it sounds cool uh toys in the attic was recorded with les pauls and the les paul sounds good uh jimmy page didn't always record with the les paul he used a lot of telecaster and other things but uh the les paul was slash's finishing touch on his image uh, he played the kibitz room once and he didn't come with, and the kibitz room was a bar inside of Canner's Deli. And probably this was a 1992 ish. And he just came, showed up there and, and picked up a guitar that was on stage. That was actually a strat. That was a piece of crap. That was just somebody brought. And it sounded like slash playing a Les Paul. So, uh, you know, he instantly can make any guitar sound like him you know, how the way he sounds. But it really, the Les Paul was more of an image thing. I mean, sure, he sounds better with it, but a little different. I mean, it's really more about the image. The, the Les Paul was the image. I mean, it just right. looks so cool. It sounds good. It sounds good. It looks good, it, you know, and, and the plane is good. So he's got you three ways. He's got you three, all three ways. Exactly. Yeah, that that sound is definitely his own, but the Les Paul just adds to the overall aesthetic Right. I mean, he was in Guitar Hero. So there you go. I mean, <laughs> he's the brand ambassador now for Gibson. So yes. the Les Paul definitely worked for him well, put it this uh, way. for Les many years. Gibson sold more Les Pauls uh, and probably would have been out of business without Slash coming around in, in, in the mid 80s and, and, and just, you know, catapulting that. <laughs> well, I'm sure they uh, have a big thank you for him whenever they see him. <laughs> Yeah, that was a bold, a bold state, a bold statement by Mark. <laughs> that was a <laughs> bold statement. Out of we do this. This is not Mark's own opinion. Not the first fifty gigs. <laughs> it is my opinion, but it's also fact. <laughs> to watch the video podcast of the first fifty gigs, that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season. Join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. Throughout this whole season, we see so many different people come in and out of these bands. It's constant changes. And even Slash 
said in his book that it was an incestuous revolving door of bands and musicians. With Adam, that was kind of the start of it, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, with Adam, uh, that was Slash's first band that he was in. So that was the beginning of it. Slash is, you know, good enough to now be in a band. So they put together a garage band. But like Adam said, everyone knew that Slash was 10 times better musically than they were and that it would only be a matter of time before the bird flew out of the nest, you know, and, and he wasn't only a bird, it was an eagle. So he, he soared out of that nest and, and he's still soaring. So, you know, but that didn't, just because he soared out of that band didn't mean now he's made it. He, he still had to go through a bunch of other incarnations of, of some of the members of, that ended up in the final five. But um, he was, you know, he had to get to the next level, start playing clubs, songwriting, uh, melodies, all the, you know, everything that goes with that. And, 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 and in that process, you know, you had basically two or three bands interchanging um, uh, musicians constantly uh, back and forth and, and until finally it took. I personally love this idea of this incestuous revolving door of bands and musicians. You know, it's just so interesting to think about chemistry. It's it's also interesting to think about who's bringing what songs when they cycle in and out of different bands. You know, you you have different alliances, you know, so so that helps to spin that door as well. You know, I feel like in many ways Axel and Izzy were a team even if they weren't in the same band together. You know, Slash and Steven were a team, even though they weren't in the same band together. Tracy Guns and Rob Gardner were a team, even if they weren't at some point in the same band. So then there's opportunity. You know, there there are people, there were musicians at that time, individuals who thought that that they could make it faster if they cycled out of a band and into another one. Um, sometimes that worked, most of the times it didn't. And then you've just got musical preferences. Some people wanted to play uh, harder metal than others. Um, some people felt drawn to punk. Some some felt drawn to, you know, bubblegum rock, as Mark called it. So, so there's just it's. I think it's a it's it's fascinating this idea of this revolving door, which I actually think makes the story of how this band came together more interesting. Once they go on hell tour and come back, the fact that they were able to stay together after that moment says a lot about that moment in time and can't wait to tell that story uh, in a couple episodes. Yes. Don't give away too much now. <laughs> That's coming. I've been watching the Beatles documentary. Uh, we just finished part three last night and I saw something in John Lennon that reminded me a lot of Izzy. And I think it was in the song, Don't Let Me Down. And, and it was just the, the, the little parts that he was playing, it reminded me how Iz Izzy's style of the of Izzy's songwriting, little little bits and pieces of he's not really a lead guitar player, but and it's not he's not playing chords. He's playing notes. He's playing like things that could be a guitar solo, but not really. They're like structured and part of the song. And it it just made me realize that Izzy was so unique that I, I've never really seen anyone do that other than John Lennon. And I didn't even, you know, the Beatles, you think they're this perfect band and these songs just magically appeared. But in that documentary, you get to watch how they come together and how they're writing. And and it just, it really re reminded me of, of how Slash and Izzy used to work uh, together and why it works so well between them. Because, you know, Slash is the dominant lead guitar player. And yes, he could come up with some riffs, but Izzy was able to like, 
come up with things that influence Slash or that Slash ended up changing. And, and you know, together they they were able to be a perfect, a, an absolute perfect fit for what they were doing back in 85, 86. So um, I just thought I'd throw that in there. I've never heard the comparison of Izzy to John Lennon or anyone in GNR to the Beatles. You just picture those bands so opposite in your mind sometimes. Izzy made little mistakes too. He wasn't a perfect guitar player. So, but he knew what he was looking for, but he would make little mistakes with it. But he, he was doing something and it just worked. You know, John Lennon is not really a lead guitar player never was going to be a lead guitar player, but he's not a rhythm guitar player either. Sure, he wrote songs and he could play songs and, and, and come up with the greatest things ever probably, but there was little parts that he attempted to do what could be considered little bits of leads. And though I, the only other person that, like I said, is Izzy is the only other person I've seen do something like that, and, and it, it kind of fits into this song. If you listen to a lot of that, those song, the Guns N' Roses songs, like on headphones, where it separates them, you could hear Izzy's parts, and, and they just they stand out for what they are. I think it really points to what you're talking about. It seems to me just really described as texture. You know, he's giving the songs a lot of texture because I saw that documentary as well. And you're right, I never I never put the two together. But but John Lennon was was you know riffing off of Paul's ideas and then adding. This, this kind of beautiful texture to the songs through yeah. those notes and through the instrumentation. And um, I, you're right, Izzy, Izzy's done the same thing with Guns N' Roses. Exactly. That, that, that's, it, you know, I didn't realize it till last night. I knew Izzy was always unique in, in what he did. And I didn't, I, you can't really compare him to anyone else until, like I said, last night, I, I finally figured it out. That it, it's, it's in that same John Lennon way of, of making, adding something to the, adding texture to the song and that that really stands out, and and without Izzy, it really, it, it just wouldn't be as good. The songs wouldn't be the same at all. Nothing would really be the same. No, Jason, I do want to circle back to what you were talking about before about people kind of pairing up into teams with Stephen and Slash. There, we haven't touched that much on their friendship in the series yet, but it's well documented in Slash's book of everything they did together. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? And Mark? Sure. I'm, I'm going to defer to Mark on this, but I wanted to say a couple of things about it. You know, we, we, did, we were not able to cover that aspect of the narrative in the interviews that we did with Adam. But I think it's really important to understand that Slash and, and Stephen met when they were in junior high school. It was Stephen who kind of pulled Slash into this idea of playing music. I think Stephen started with with a guitar. Stephen's grandmother had a one-string flamenco guitar in a closet that Slash, you know, took out and plucked and, and was already kind of taken in. I think he started playing bass and then switched to the guitar. There's just a lot of stuff that happened with Stephen and Slash that wasn't covered. And they hung out all the time. You know, they were hanging out on the strip, sneaking into the rainbow, you know, using fake IDs. I think Mark you know, told us one story. Yeah, yeah. Mark told, told the story of of uh, of Slash dressing up on you know as a girl to get into girls' night. You know, but again, it was it, they had this real kinship, and and that's really all I wanted to mention about it. You know, they spent their days wandering Hollywood with their head in the clouds, talking about music and hustling money and starting a band. 
And I think Stephen's influence on Slash at that time really uh, weighed heavily in in the direction he ultimately pursued. And you know what what we are all we are all the beneficiaries of, and that is you know Slash becoming the guitarist uh, he became and and joining forces with with the Appetite lineup. So I I just wanted to mention that, and I don't add, Mark, I don't know if you wanted to add anything about their friendship. Well, here's the interesting thing. When Slash was going to John Burroughs, you know, we went to Third Street Elementary School and then John Burroughs, but somewhere around the eighth grade, he got kicked out of John Burroughs and went to Bancroft. And when he went to Bancroft, I lost touch with him for a, a, you know, about a year or so. But he instantly made friends with Stephen. So he, Stephen was like the guy he hung out with when, when, when we weren't hanging out for a little while. And then when I found Slash again, like after that year, he was no longer hanging out with Stephen. Stephen had moved to the Valley, but he had a, a relationship with Stephen. And so um, when I met Stephen, it was like at a Joe Perry concert in 1982 at the country club in Reseda. And I thought he, you know, he was a little drunk and he was just like a, a little bit annoying. And I didn't, you know, slash a talk, my friend, Stephen, my friend, Stephen, you know, all this thing, my friend, Stephen, I'm, I'm like, this guy's a Nimrod, you know, I didn't think much of him. I thought he was very annoying. And that was the end of that. But then, you know, a year and a half later, Stephen started playing drums and he was a lot, you know, he was, he was good at it. And he was, he was looking for Slash again. And when he met up with Slash at, at Curly Joe's studio in, you know, December, uh, New Year's Eve of 1983, he saw that Slash had really gotten that guitar. He, you know, he got light years better from just strumming one string and, 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 and desperately needed to work with Slash and, and convince Slash to, you know, replace Adam with him. I mean, yeah, so he, he could take Adam's place in the band. And like I said, there was in, in the past, there was nothing wrong with Adam. He wasn't looking to get rid of Adam. But Stephen was so adamant about it. And he, he just, you know, he sold those double bass drums to Slash. And, 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 you know, the fact that they had a connection, like you were saying, that he influenced Slash in the first place to play guitar. And, you know, they had a friendship for a year in, in junior high school. And now he's living here again. He's living, you know, in Hollywood. And he knows that Slash is the one you want to play with. The, the only issue is I wasn't around when they had their <laughs> early history. I was around with the new history. So my history with Stephen begins when he joins Road Crew. And then, you know, that history was, you know, Stephen was the David Lee Roth of, of them. He would, you know, he would go out and he'd hook up with a girl and disappear and, what you know, he uh, watch the you know eat all the food out of the refrigerator, watch shower and eat all uh, and watch MTV and so and then he was off the next day and doing you know doing the same thing again. But Stephen's the type of person that throws a bunch of shit on the wall and something's going to stick. He he just was um, he kept trying you know he kept whatever he didn't do right he got an A for trying to do it right you know he 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 just put himself out there he really was loud and put himself out there. <laughs> To preview the full experience of the first 50 gigs video podcast that includes exclusive photos and videos from Mark's archive, check out the first 50 gigs YouTube channel. You'll find the link right here in our episode show notes. Jason, did you want to talk about Ronnie Schneider? He was a very interesting guest to have on the show and to hear his perspective Jason, do you want to talk about why you wanted his voice so badly in this project? Well, so Ronnie passed away in 2011, 
And, you know, we thought it was important to include his perspective. Luckily, I did an interview with him in 2007 for Reckless Road. And, you know, he had a unique perspective on how Titus Sloan and Road Crew came together. He had a unique perspective on how um, Adam was pushed out in favor of Stephen. You know, I, I think it was, uh, you know, respectful of us to include him in the story. And I know that he was loved by all. Uh, he went on to be a roadie in tech for, for GNR. Mark had a very close relationship. So to, to me, it was important to have had him in, included in this narrative. Well, the thing with Ronnie was, um, and we found this out at his memorial service, which we had at Canners when he passed away. And there was like 300 people there, literally. And, and that was with just a couple of days notice. And everyone kept coming up to me saying, you don't understand, Ronnie was my best friend. And I laughed at them saying, you don't understand, Ronnie was everybody's best friend. Ronnie was someone, you met Ronnie, he became a part of you. He lived on my couch for months and six months at a time out of every year. Ronnie was like a part of you. If you watched a movie without Ronnie, you, you didn't get the movie right. I mean, you had to be, you just needed Ronnie there. But his time, you know, as a musician in, in the Titus Sloan and Road Crew, the two different, uh, actually two different Titus Sloans and one Road Crew. And the fact that he was almost the bass player in Hollywood Rose, except for the fact that he was a little bit too metalish for Axel's taste. You know, th there's a lot of history there. There's a, he was there. He was, if he wasn't in the band, he was at the gig. He was hanging out backstage. He was at the parties. He, whatever was going on behind the scenes, Ronnie was there. So, and Ronnie was there because everybody loved Ronnie, including Axel. You know, even though he wasn't in the band, Axel didn't want him in the band. Axel just considered him one of his best friends. So anything that comes out of Ronnie's mouth is, is good knowledge. Two of our episodes this season were not a part of the GNR narrative at all, but they were extremely important to the story as a whole. And I think that's because we dive into the Sunset Strip's history and we're able to get a broader picture of how important the Sunset Strip is, not just for Hollywood, but also for music history. Why did we decide to pull away from the narrative? Well, I'll, I'll throw that back at you, Lumina. So um, as a GNR fan, you know, what was your initial reaction to suddenly seeing two episodes that, that were a deviation from this narrative um, had really nothing to do with GNR, um, but was an attempt to set the stage for what's coming later? What was your initial reaction? Uh, a little bit of confusion as to what's going on, but once you start watching those episodes, it's just mind-blowing of how much history is there and how everything seems to tie into itself. That every club on the Strip was a club before that. And there's just a rich amount of history there. And it, it was amazing. I'm very glad we have those episodes. Yeah, I think, you know, our intention was to set the stage and to help people understand where we were in time and, and how we got to that place. You know, there's there's a continuity, there's a history that Guns N' Roses were part of. And I, d I really don't think you're telling the whole story without hearing those two episodes and how the Sunset Strip as a character in the story came to be. You know, Mark, this was not a part of your story. 
What did you think of these two episodes when you saw that we were doing this? Well, uh, the Lori Jacobson episode just blew me away because I had no idea that, you know, how it went back that far and, and why why people were trying to so they could they could they could drink they could drink and drive and not get arrested and just the whole history of how that started and and, and how all like everything that turned into Vegas later on in the fifties and sixties was really on the Sunset Strip. I had zero idea of this. So it really made the story, uh, you know, I thought you were just having some fun with making sure no stones were unturned and, and getting a little bit more, you know, a little bit more of, of, of the of, of the story behind, a little, add a little texture. But after I saw it, the episodes, uh, I was just like, wow, because it really sets the stage for how, where the Sunset Strip came from. And, and, you know, everyone's goal is to get to the Sunset Strip, you know, in the 80s to, to make it and get signed and all the record companies that are on Sunset Boulevard and in Hollywood. And so it was really um, it was really an interesting piece of, uh, of history. You know, that that was that that itself is a documentary. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love how those two episodes, what you find is the convergence of Hollywood, you know, uh, the counterculture movements, you know, the civil rights fight. And obviously you've got the electrification of rock and roll. You have the center of gravity shifting from New York to Los Angeles. And then you have people from all over the country wanting to pursue the dream and live live the dream and play music together. And, and so, yeah, I, uh, the one quote from both episodes that sticks out for me the most is when Laurie Jacobson says that, so then when Axel's on stage there at the Whiskey belting his heart out, that Jim Morrison is there in the rafters looking down on him, you know, the ghost of Jim Morrison. I, I just thought that was exactly what we were trying to capture as, as Guns N' Roses is part of a continuum um, that date, dates back all the way to the 1920s with Hollywood stars and, and performers. So I don't think we need to talk too much about that, but I did, I did really want to give that to the fans to help them identify with Sunset Strip as, as a character where this all takes place. Eddie Trunk was very impressed with that. Cool. Yes, he was. And as a fan, I'm very glad you did it. And I think we all are. It was great. So let's switch gears a little bit back to our actual interviews with people from the GNR narrative. Chris Weber was by far one of our best interviews And we really started to identify and bring together the story threads as we're tracing the formation of the Appetite lineup of GNR. Do you you want to talk about his interview? You know, so yes, this this gets us back onto the the narrative of how the Appetite lineup of GNR comes together. You know, Chris represents one of the main story threads along that journey. And, you know, I, I think it was important to call out that he was a contributor to some of these great songs and and to make sure he was recognized for that. You know, it was also Chris that, um, and Chris's parents that put up the money for Hollywood Rose to make a demo. That demo was then used to get in, you know, to try to get bookings on the strip. And that's the same demo that Cleopatra Records remastered and produced and put out as the Roots of Guns N' Roses. So I think it's important that Chris got recognition. But I think the most interesting part of Chris really was, you know, his his coming of age in Rose and in Hollywood Rose, the influence that Axel and Izzy 
had on him as a player. And again, you know, the, the, the contribution that from him that you hear on Appetite for Destruction. I think for those reasons, Chris was a really important guest to have on the show. What you said about the demos, it stuck out to me that he mentioned that the sound that you hear on that demo is so close to what you'd eventually hear three years later on Appetite. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's so close, but you can hear you can hear the sound coming together, right? Because they would speed it up and slow it down and by the time it got to Mike Klink's hands, um it it, it became unique to, to 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 his ear. But you can certainly hear the sound coming together. You can hear Axel finding his voice. But I think you know Chris again was instrumental in organizing and creating riffs. For, for some of those early songs. Anything goes went through different tempos and different uh, th- three or four lyric changes. And I actually liked the original one the best and I got used to it. And then they cha- when I changed it, I wasn't really happy with it. And then they changed it again and then it got changed again. But Chris Weber was there. He was just a kid. He was like 16 years old at the time. He was good enough at that age to, be, to work with Izzy and Axel and, and, and get that going. And when when uh, Slash came into the picture, they you know Axel realized that Slash was the stepping stone from Chris Weber to the next level, is working with Slash, and and that's you know otherwise I think Chris Weber would have still been in the band for a lot you know until whatever you know whatever may have came of it. Um, I just think it was like it was the same situation with Adam Greenberg and, and Steven Adler. Slash was the Steven Adler that came around, poking around, at, at looking for a singer and a guitar player. And, uh, you know, Axel said, well, okay, let's go this direction. And that was the end of Chris Weber because simply be- not because he couldn't cut it, because Slash was just that much different or better or what, you know, more amusing. And, and uh, it was the next level. It was just the next step in the process. Exactly. Yeah. He helped them reach that next plateau. I will say that out of all of the guests we've had and all of the people who have played with the members of Guns N' Roses, Steve Darrow is arguably the person who flew closest to the sun in terms of being in the Appetite lineup, wouldn't you say? I think what's interesting about Steve Darrow is that he had known Axel and Izzy before. He he started playing drums, but I don't think he made the cut in their opinion, but then he switched to bass joined Carrie Doll or started Carrie Doll. I think that was his band and, and got pretty good. I think Axel and Izzy saw his dedication to the music and for lack of a better word, he was kind of in the, 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 the back pocket. Hollywood Rose breaks up and the, the new Hollywood Rose starts and and Steve Darrow comes into the fold and actually Slash comes into the, the fold and Steven. So now you have Axel, you have Izzy, you have Slash, you have Steven, and you have Steve Darrow. Now, the five of them, I think, only made made it to one or two rehearsals, at which point in time, Izzy did not want to play with, with another guitar player. So he didn't want to play with Slash. And he takes his shot at the revolving door and spins out to London. So now it's the four of them. It's Axel, it's Slash, it's uh, Steven Adler, and Steve Darrow. And, you know, they do pretty well together. Mark, you, you captured a lot of these gigs. I think they, they booked probably five gigs together. But the New Hollywood Rose was, I think they were they were getting pretty good. 
Mark, what's your recollection of New Hollywood Rose? Steve Darrell coming into Hollywood Rose at the same time as Slash coming into Hollywood Rose and Steven created an almost appetite for destruction lineup moment versus, I mean, meaning he's there instead of Duff. Had Izzy not quit and gotten joined London and stuck around, and it's a kind of a two-parter, somebody would have had to figure out, because it was actually Izzy and Duff that figured out later to take away one of Steve's bass drums. But So Duff wasn't there yet. Um, but if Izzy had figured it out with somebody else in the band and, and, and hidden one of Steven's bass drums at that moment in time, that right there could have been your Hollywood Rose, your, your, your Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction lineup with the only difference being Steve Darrell versus Duff. But what's interesting is, okay, that didn't happen. But what did happen was Hollywood Rose played like four or five gigs together. They stayed together for three months. Then it fell apart. But right before it fell apart, Steve Darrell was gone. And there was a new bass player. I believe his name was DJ. That was in for one gig, which I was not at because I went to go see Aerosmith probably in Fresno or somewhere like that. And uh, so I missed that gig anyways. But I believe it was August 25th of 1984. But um, so, yeah, he might not have made the cut anyways. It looked like he was out even before they broke up. But it didn't matter because he still he was there for at, at least one rehearsal with the other four members of the Appetite for Destruction lineup. So it, it, it was an almost moment. I think another very interesting um, part of this period of time with the new Hollywood Rose is that it's the first time that Axel and Slash play together. And it's the first time that they bond. And I think that part of the breakup of the new Hollywood Rose comes out of this explosive moment with Axel and Slash. They, they have a disagreement. Uh, it, it came out of Axel staying at Slash's grandmother's uh, apartment or something. It's not important, but what's important is that this this establishes that relationship. Mark, I think there's a third element. You mentioned two. I think the third element that, that needed to be present to solidify this band is Hell Tour. They didn't have anything like a Hell Tour. Um, Hell Tour was a, was a unique experience that these that the five Appetite guys did go through. And if they hadn't gone through that together... They may not have been together. If Duff wasn't in the band, there wouldn't have been a hell tour. And if there wasn't a hell tour, it wasn't. A, there wouldn't have been something enough. Even though they knew they were good musicians, it might not have stuck. And hell tour is what helped make them not only musicians, but sort of like blood brothers that had each other's backs after that because they suffered a little bit together. And there was something that put them together. So without Duff, you wouldn't have that. But then again, Duff... Duff's style of his punk rockness really funked up, you know, and really punked up Guns N' Roses. You know, imagine Appetite for Destruction without It's So Easy. Still good, mm -hmm. but it just, you know, it's it's not, it's, you need that It's So Easy in there. So anyways, yeah, I mean, obviously it all worked out because they came back together late, you know, a couple a year later, and, and and somehow those musicians found each other again. And this time they had Duff, and Duff was briefly in in road crew for a week, you know, in the fall of '84. So uh, there was a connection that Slash already had. So Duff knew that Slash was the good guitar player, but he didn't stick around with him long enough because he just wanted to move on because there was no singer. He didn't think there was much. There was too much work that needed to be done. But right. when he came across Slash the second time, he's like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. 
<laughs> to watch the video podcast of the first 50 gigs, that includes exclusive photos and videos from this episode and the entire season, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe. So, Jason, to start wrapping up the midseason recap, what's significant about the breaking up of the New Hollywood Rose? So what's interesting about the end of the New Hollywood Rose is that, you know, these four guys now scatter. Axel gets recruited into L.A. Guns, but Steven and Slash, you know, they spin out. And what they want to do now is they want to start up Road Crew again. Right. So again, you're seeing this team, these teams. So the Slash and Steven team, they start Road Crew. What do they do? They put an ad in the recycler. So who answers the ad but Duff, who has just literally arrived in Los Angeles in September of 1984. So he finds that ad, he calls them up and they decide to meet at Cantor's, of course. I heard a couple great stories about that. It's documented in both Slash's biography and Duff's biography about the actual meeting that Duff came dressed pretty crazy. It, it, it seemed to be a mismatch on the surface, but ended up being actually a really significant meeting of hearts and minds. I know Slash and Stephen had their girlfriends with them, so, so they were witness to that. But Mark, you were there. Tell us how this played out. Well, I was there and, and we didn't know what Duff looked like, but uh, we told, you know, meet us at Canners and, and, and it's a good neutral place to meet. Uh, but the funny thing is I scouted out where we should sit so we could, you know, wait for, see who comes in the door. And it turned out, uh, many, many, many years later, that same booth was used for president Obama to sit at because the secret service did the same scouting report that I did. And we came up with the both We both came up with the same booth and that booth gave you a perfect view of what's coming in through the front door. And, and so therefore we ended up in, which is now the Obama booth, uh, hanging out. And when Duff, when, when people walked in, we'd say, okay, that's maybe, is that, you think that's Duff? And then Duff actually did walk in and we said, okay, that's gotta be Duff. And then we went, you know, I, I probably went, they, they were probably sitting eating and I went and got him and brought him to the table. And, you know, right away, uh, Slash's girlfriend started asking him questions or, are you gay? Are you the, oh, we'll get, we'll find you a girlfriend. If you're, you know, just, just making him feel at home. I got him a bowl of Barley bean soup, which is very comforting. And, um, you know, we welcomed, we welcomed him in and, and, and he was a nice guy. And, and, you know, they started working together in with road crew. You know, he joined them working together and he was there about a week. They actually worked on what, what might've become rocket queen later on. But Duff didn't stick around because uh, there wasn't a singer. There wasn't enough, you know, they, they weren't, hadn't played clubs yet. Uh, and it was just a, a Slash and Steven. It wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't enough to, Duff was looking for something that he could, you know, join a band and start doing gigs. He wasn't looking to build one from scratch. And um, so he was just briefly there. And so that was, that was you know, we, Duff was in and out of that. And then, you know, we all know later on he comes back and we'll, we'll get to that. But that's how that's how we met Duff. Well, I want to thank you both again for being here with me today. This was an absolute blast. And 
think we're all looking forward to seeing the last half of the season. Yeah. So what we have up next is Rob Gardner. So Rob Gardner is going to pick up where we left off on at this point. So New Hollywood Rose breaks up slash Stephen and, and Duff meet. You know, Izzy is still with London. So Rob Gardner is going to kind of guide us through this next story. I think it's also interesting to mention that around this time, so maybe a couple months down the road, Izzy and Duff end up living across the street from each other and start bumping into each other and, be, and form a friendship. So we're excited to share all those stories with you. One little bit of, of, of other information. After Izzy left London, Slash and Steven, after they failed to put Road Crew back together because Duff didn't stick around, they actually both ended up in London for about three weeks or so. All right, guys. Well, again, thank you for being here today and doing this mid-season recap. This has been fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the first 50 gigs, Guns N' Roses, and the making of Appetite for Destruction. To watch the video podcast, access bonus episodes and galleries, and buy show merchandise, join our growing community on Patreon and subscribe.